Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. My guest today is Dr. Peter Pronovost, who is a critical care physician at Johns Hopkins and is a world authority on patient safety and quality in the hospital setting. This is a subject that really over the last 20 years or so has risen to the forefront across every hospital system in the United States and really around the world as well. And Dr. Pronovost has been right out at the sharp edge. He's earned several awards. He was a MacArthur Fellow. He was named by Time Magazine as one of the world's 100 most influential people in 2008. He's addressed Congress. He's given TED Talks. He's done all of the things that you would want a leader in healthcare innovation to be able to do. And now he's joining us on Explore the Space. So really excited to have Dr. Pronovost. And without further ado, here's Dr. Pronovost. Dr. Pronovost, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's great to be here, Mark. This is very exciting. I was a resident in uh, 2003 through 2006, and some of the key work that you and your teams were doing around safety in the hospital, particularly safety in the intensive care unit, safety in the operating room around the way that we put in big, invasive central line catheters, big IVs that we put into really, really sick people so we can infuse medications and do laboratory tests and things like that. The way we do that got turned on its head in short order. And a lot of that was the work that you were doing. Take us back a little bit. I always like to set some context when I have these episodes with people who've done big stuff. Take us back a little bit around when you started to do work in safety before the meteoric rise, before the attention, before probably everything changed for you, where was your thinking around, I need to start pressing some buttons. I need to start getting some things done. Hey, Mark, uh, thanks. And uh, like so many stories, uh, our story began uh, with shortcomings and fallibility. You see, in 2001, on a snowy night, in a darkened corner of the ICU, Josie King, an adorable little girl who looked just like my daughter, was taken off of life support and died in her mother's arms. She had been burned, but the doctors and nurses worked to save her, but a catheter infection sacrificed her. At the time, Mark, those infections killed as many people as breast or prostate cancer. I mean, that's the scope of the public health problem. But also at the time, we just accepted it. We were told that sometimes little girls like Josie are going to die. And she did. And after she died, her mother, Sorrell, an amazing woman, came up to me and said, Peter, could you tell me that this won't happen again? And specifically, this won't happen to my other daughters because she was deathly worried about them. Oh, my God. And I looked at her and I said, Sorrel, I can't. And it was the most humbling and moving moment in my life, Mark, because we were doing a lot of stuff. It was like we're playing whack-a-mole, but there was no science. There was no theory. There was no accountability. And so we looked at her and said, Sorrel, I can't give you an answer, but I will. So we turned to say, our goal now is to eliminate these infections. And we made a checklist of best practices to help us do that. We 
reviewed practices and made it easy for doctors and nurses to use the checklist. We fed data on compliance back into the system. We investigated every infection. And then within short order, these infections were virtually eliminated first at Johns Hopkins, and then we spread the program state by state across the country. And now, Mark, those infections that used to kill as many people as breast or prostate cancer are down 80% across the country and now in about eight or so other countries. It's just it's a, a remarkable opportunity to learn. It's really fascinating to hear the way this story starts. And it starts off with this conversation with a grieving mother. Where are we with the understanding from the public, from patients and their families you know, this woman who's grieving had the thoughtfulness and sensitivity to ask you that question. Does this still happen? What level of understanding do people have around patient safety at this point who are not in the hospital even, who are just doing their thing? When you give talks, you've given TED Talks, you've given interviews, what's the feedback around this concept of keeping people safe in the hospital? Yeah, great question, Mark. And when I reflect on this, I am both hopeful and humbled. I'm hopeful because we sh show that with the right measures and programs and collaboration, we can really lick one of these safety problems. I'm humbled because these infections are one of dozens of reasons patients are harmed and the public's not aware of it and we haven't improved in those other ones anywhere near the extent that, that, we, that we could. Share with you, Mark, my mother's uh, in her late 70s and lives up in Cape Cod and because I could never re refuse a speaking invitation for my mother she brought me <laughs> up to the Chatham's women group in Cape Cod and I was speaking about uh, safety and how big the problem was and even specifically Mark as you may know about how there's enormous evidence that surgeons who do procedures and hospitals do the two procedures more often have better outcomes but well over half of the hospitals and surgeons for these very risky things in the country do one or two of them. I mean, like literally one or two. And when I, and, and that their risk of dying when that happens goes up astonishingly, it was news to them. And these were educated, you know, middle-class uh, men and women who would, I would have thought this was old knowledge for them. But it hasn't been. And what it speaks to me, Mark, and why I'm so excited to do your program, is that I think as a as a safety movement, we've been preaching to the choir too much. We've been too insular. It's the same people at every meetings and and we say the same results, but we haven't brought more broadly engaged the public in this discussion. And they're an absolutely vital voice who we need to, to be driving the improvement. So they, you know, say, well, why aren't your hospital volumes transparently on the web? And when I walk in, what are your infection rates? And are you using a checklist? And make sure we engage the public more broadly. I think that that's the kernel of truth in a way, that they do need to be more engaged because this is something that, you know, as a busy clinician, I also like to pay attention to. And, and I'll be meeting with a new patient or I'll be talking with their family. And I use the phrase, our priority while you're here and after you leave is your safety. We want to make decisions based around your safety. So maybe they request a medication that I don't feel like is safe. And I'll tell them, you know what? I don't want to offer that medication right now because our priority is your safety. We don't want you to fall. We don't want X, Y, or Z to happen. But I get a range of responses when I say things like that. 
I get a range of my safety. What are you talking about? All the way to someone extending their hand saying, thank you. I appreciate you paying attention. I would say probably it's more the former, the look of what are you talking about? My safety, almost like it's understood that uh, I'm supposed to be safe in here, right? There, there definitely is a bit of a disconnect there, I think. Yeah, you're absolutely, absolutely right, Mark. And that's a really keen insight. You see, you know, most patients have profound trust and respect in their physicians. And, and when they ask them, you know, how good of a doctor they, their physician is, they all say, without a doubt, they're the best doctor in the world. And somehow we have to reconcile that with the data that, you know, preventable medical errors may be one of the leading causes of death in this country. And, right. but it's everybody else and not my, not, uh, my physician, and in part, Mark, it's almost the same journey that we've had to go on as physicians. And and what I mean by that, when we looked into what was the secret sauce that allowed us to get those infections in the ICUs down dramatically, uh, we partnered with some anthropologists and sociologists and interviewed doctors and nurses to find out why. And what we found was, though the checklist was important, That wasn't the magic sauce. The magic sauce was what I call believing and belonging. That is, they changed their belief from saying these infections are inevitable, that they just happen when you care for sick or old or very young patients, to no, no, these infections are preventable and I am capable of doing something about it. And that story the switch from harm being inevitable to harm being preventable, I don't believe we've migrated to patients and their families more. So when things go wrong, and and sometimes they do, that are not preventable, but many times they are preventable, they still see that as, well, you know, sometimes things go wrong after you have things. And, and, you know, or it's just the natural course of my disease. Like, you know, when, when you were saying you were a resident, and when I started practicing, when Josie died, our infection rates were sky high, and we all thought we were given good care. We just accepted that as the way you practice medicine. Hey, you do big cases, it's the cost of caring for sick people. And now our thinking is radically different. I think there's that I, – I agree with you in that pivot. But the pivot, I think, for the patients and for families, there is still that idea – you know, we go back to how we learn about American medicine and there's the sort of paragons and the big names and the, you know, the lofty professor and the white castle on the hill. There's a, there's a combination, I think, of uncertainty and maybe a little bit of even intimidation where people who are not the physician and maybe not the nurse still have a hard time of migrating the concepts of just culture to the other side of the bed to be able to say, hang on a minute, I have a question or, or wait a moment, can, can, I, can I ask you something? Or, hey, I didn't see you wash your hands when you came in the room. Build, building the bridge there, the, the pieces of building that bridge, I think we have the pieces, but how do we put those together? Yeah, and Mark, it's a great point. That, and like any relationship, we have to work on both sides. I'll share with you a brief story. I recently uh, had a piece in the AARP journal about what patients could do to keep themselves safe when they're engaging with their healthcare. And as you just alluded to, one of those things are speak up and speak out, ask questions. You know, if you're not comfortable, get a second opinion. And um, 
and make sure you, you understand what's going on with your body, your loved one's body. And to you and I, that means seems so common sense. I got flooded with email saying, great in theory, Peter, but get off your high horse. Do you know if I question my doctor, I would be fired, but for my doctor. And I was stunned. <laughs> and, wow. and, and it wasn't just one person. It was many people who say, um, I would love to speak up, but I'm afraid to, that I think it wouldn't go well. I literally, I think I, I live in a rural area. There's this one specialist and you know, my response is how dangerous that is because, uh, in the improvement world, humility and curiosity are the two core values for improvement that without those, you're never going to get better because you're never even asked the questions. And the physicians who don't want to be questioned, in, in my book, it's a huge red flag for hubris, which equals risk. Yes. And so I think we need to work at both ends of the equation. We need to make sure that in our training programs and in our hospitals, we uh, encourage physicians to be respectful and to encourage questioning. And, and, it, and it doesn't make you uh, any of a weaker physician or a worse physician. It makes you stronger. It's going to make you get give your patient better outcomes. And for patients to give them that courage and encouragement to say, it's your body, who else but you knows what to ask about and to speak up and and working at both ends, perhaps we could accelerate this collaboration between patients and their physicians. You, you've talked about in, in your writings and in some of your talks that you've given this issue of we do great research, we write the best papers. It's the it's the frontline sort of deployment of those strategies. And like you just said, you know, the, the application of these things so we can integrate patients and help physicians and nurses, you know, change behavior in a way where they don't feel like they've done something wrong, where they feel like they can do something better. We could you and I can talk about it and you know, we'll pat ourselves on the back and think, all right, let's go get them. But we've also both been in rooms and in conversations and meetings where you feel like you're hitting your head against a wall. So let's talk about the deployment of the strategies that are going to move the needle. You know, in your experience, where is the checklist? Where is the toolbox or what is to help modify these behaviors and to help modify these, these attitudes and these feelings so that we can really start to move in series instead of in parallel? Yeah, Mark, your <clears throat> great comments. And you're right. Too many of us in academics think our job is only to produce or publish new knowledge and think magically that just gets translated into practice as right. opposed to what I do is improvement science. That No, no, that, that it's great you published a paper, but it's meaningless if it doesn't get actually implemented to benefit a patient. And, you know, Mark, we um, did this fascinating work where after our infection project, we went into hospitals that were zero or near zero and those that didn't reduce their infections to understand What's different about these two? Exactly what you were just questioning. And what we found was there were four specific things that those hospitals that were near zero all did, and they did them all uh, if they were to get very low infection rates. And they are, <clears throat> their leaders declared a goal and communicated a goal of zero harm. That when I walked into a hospital and I would ask the CEO, uh, so what's your infection rate? Oh, you know, I don't really know, Peter, but, you know, my ICU director, my hospitalist, or my infection prevention, they're on it. You know, they, they're managing that. 
guarantee that hospital wasn't zero. The hospital that was zero was to say, Peter, we've been 600 days without an infection. Our goal is zero harm. And I tell every one of our staff and new employees, that's our goal. No wonder they're, they're that good. Second thing they do is they create, Mark, what we call an enabling infrastructure. In other words, they make it easy to improve. They support the doctors and nurses with project management, with feeding back data, with the training that they need, with developing the checklist that they need to help to have the supplies available if it's a checklist item so it's easy to use. Third thing they do is that they engage frontline clinicians where the, where the magic happens and they connect them in what we call peer learning communities. You see, when we did our infection work, we found that it wasn't paid for performance that drove improvement. It was telling that new story. And that happened when we connected doctor and doctor and nurse to nurse, hospital to hospital. Because I look at you and say, wow, Mark, look how low your infection rates. What are you doing? I, I think I'm as good as you guys are. Let me see what you got going on. And you share with me or another hospital would share what they did. And it's through this peer learning communities that is the power for improvement. And then finally and fourth, what they did was they transparently reported performance and they had shared accountability. In other words, if you weren't performing at a level, if your infection rates were high, somebody looked and questioned it. <clears throat> and I think those four things really allow us to get a framework for beginning to understand about what does it take to drive to zero harm. That first point that you made, there was one time I remember my wife and I were walking around Manhattan and there was a, one of the big job sites and it has the sign up that says, days since a work site accident or something like that. And they turn the right. numbers over. And I remember thinking, what would happen if you put one of those up in a hospital? And I think a concern, I think that people always have with this sort of stuff, with being open, being transparent, talking about it, publicizing it is I think they're afraid they're going to get in trouble. I think that administrators are afraid they might get in trouble physicians and trouble can mean a lot of things. Trouble means, you know, your boss is being angry. Trouble means the threat of litigation. Trouble means patients leaving your practice. That is a big one to overcome. That Taking that leap to being transparent is a huge step. There are places that have done it. You've done it. What, <laughs> how do we get there? It's tough. It's really, really tough. Yeah, Mark, it is tough. You know, I, on that note, I often say, uh, you know, I'll get requests to go speak about our work and to tell that Josie King story. And many hospitals have repeated that story and say, oh, look at this terrible thing that happened at Johns Hopkins. And what I say to all their CEOs and the board is I say, you'll know that you get this stuff when you tell your own Josie story, because you have many. It's just the question if you open your eyes and have the courage to tell it. And it's a really transformative moment for health systems because it's easy to say, oh, look at this terrible thing that happened at another hospital. It's a fundamentally different thing to say, no, look what we did in our health system and we're committed to not doing it again. Now, we obviously need to be respectful. I'm not just a researcher. I'm an executive at Hopkins. And so I, we have to navigate those threads, but we have to make sure our leaders recognize that the risks of the status quo of not improving are far, far greater than the risks of transparency and improving. And most importantly, the needless suffering and toll that it puts on patients. You won't get better if you don't do that. 
But the reality is there's more and more economic reasons to do it. There's more reputational reasons to do it because as quality and safety is increasingly reported. And there's frankly the moral reason to do it, that you could engage your organization that you're doing the right thing. And so, yes, there is some resistance and often fear, uh, but we're seeing a number of courageous organizations that say, you know what, this is just the right thing to do. I think that that point may be what becomes the most important legacy of the work that yourself, Atul Gawande, others, you know, the, the leaders of the patient safety movement, that that might be it, that it's obviously there's tremendous impact in terms of outcomes, in terms of reducing infections, but I think it's sort of detonating the lid on that big kind of fomenting thing that we were all knew was there. We were all afraid of that. Hey, look, this is a fallible job. We are fallible as practitioners in that job. We strive to be the best. Let's figure out how to actually get there. Because I wonder if before that, I mean, when you in, in was part of what drove you, did you feel a sense that, Hey, look, let's talk about this thing. Let's pull the cover back and, and kind of get into this Pandora's box around medical errors was that something that was in the background for you as you started to do your work and also publicize your work? Yes, yeah, as you know, Mark, like you, I'm a practicing physician. So I'm in the trenches caring for sick patients in the ICU. And like you, I realized that no doctor or nurse wants to harm a patient. I mean, they, they do their absolutely best every day. And we... <clears throat> expect heroism out of them in many ways because we give them clunky and clumsy technology and you know our recent EMR implementations are a perfect example of that. I mean they're they're like just set you up for errors and low productivity. And when things happen they feel horrible. Ho absolutely horrible and many that's part of the reasons for burnout and people leaving the profession. And I think what we have to begin to talk about is to say, hey, when these bad things happen, we, we have a role in our training and, and, and uh, if we did egregious behaviors to be accountable for them. But the vast majority of events were because we were working in systems that are broken and that set us up to make mistakes. And we can't be ostriches anymore. We can't say, oh, but that's that management's role or that's the hospital leadership role. I'm just a tie. We have to start saying, yes, the systems are broken and I'm going to work to make them better because it's only those frontline clinicians who have the wisdom how to make them better. Right? Unless you're in the trenches, you don't know how to design a checklist or a workflow because you have to understand how work is actually done. And so I... I'm excited that we see now more and more physicians taking on leadership roles in quality and safety and, and getting some of their time supported to be part of the solutions. And I'd love to see more of that. You know, in, in our hospital, we have these unit-based safety teams and clinic-based safety teams that every unit in our hospital has a doctor and nurse champion who forms a CUSP team that works on safety in that local area. And departments are now getting vice chairs of safety who own safety and quality in the department. And then hospitals are having, you know, chief quality officers and they're all creating the structures to learn and improve together. As you're building these programs, two questions around it. One, do you feel like they are generalizable? Are they generalizable where they can be not at Johns Hopkins, but they can be at a critical access hospital um, in Nevada 
or they could be at a, you know, tertiary care level two trauma center. Um, that's the first. The second is, is there a common language yet? Are we speaking the same language? So when w- the critical access hospital in Nevada or level two trauma center are doing things, can they readily exchange information and say, ah, I know exactly what you're talking about and I can replicate it here? Yeah, so great uh, questions. The programs are absolutely generalizable because they're just based on sound principles of leadership and management that are have been applied in every other safe industry. We call those high reliability industries, and and they're generalizable. Now, the form that they take might vary if you're a critical access hospital. I may have a smaller percentage of my time. I may not have as many people as I have at Johns Hopkins, but the skills are the same. And indeed, we've now spread these programs uh, to health systems around the globe, and and they've all worked. They, they've modified them to fit their local context and resources as is they should and as absolutely needed. But the principles of of the way we work are absolutely key. And one of the main ideas is to evolve safety from being a project to a performance management system. That is, too often quality and safety has been like playing whack-a-mole, where one measure pops up and you put effort on to try to get it down. And we always but, feel like we're behind. Correct. And often those what we play whack-a-mole for are things that are publicly reported or paid for quality. Yeah. But when we surveyed our physicians, which we did, and asked them, what are they most worried about? Very few of those measures were on their list. They were things like handoffs or op- supplies in the operating room or the inefficiencies that caused me to be uh, de- delayed in doing my documentation. And we need to address those things as managers, too. And so we've been integrating this work into what we now call an operating management system. It's a term that we've borrowed from oil and gas or NASA. They all see quality and safety not as whack-a-mole, but as a seamless component of managing that addresses governance and leadership, the technology systems, the training, who you fire, who you hire, and all seamlessly focus on improving value for patients. When you're in the ICU and you're deploying these these programs and you have people doing these things and you know everything from safety huddles to you know checklists, how forward facing are they? And, and what I mean by that is, are the patients and their families aware that they're happening? Are you telling them, hey, this is this crew, this is what they're doing, they're going to be in the room with us, and this is what their their purpose is, or are they you know an operating system that or you know a program that runs in the background? Uh, there's probably some of the programs run in the background. The ones that interface with the patients, they're absolutely, tra- not only are they transparent about Mark, they're actively engaged in. Let me give you an example. When we look at our checklist for preventing ventilator-associated pneumonia, you may know as a hospitalist that one of the things is elevating the head of the bed and performing oral care. It should be done every you know couple hours. Well, we share that checklist with the patient and say, hey, if you see the pate, your loved one flat, let us know. Be part of the checklist monitor with us. If, we, if you don't think we, we missed oral care or we uh, have a gap in care, please speak up and let us know. Work with us. Hey, why don't you join rounds with us so you can give your input about what's going on and how you see things because you have a lot more wisdom than we do. And so now we're doing shift reports in the patient's room with their, with their loved ones. We're doing 
daily rounds where the patients and the families are in there, and we're getting them to help us comply with best practices. And what's remarkable about it is when we first started this, there was a lot of fear about this is going to take forever. They're going to ask questions. I'm never going to get through rounds. Uh, they don't know what these issues are. And none of that has realized. As a matter of fact, it saved time because people get their questions answered right around. You don't have to go back later. It makes it safer because they're helping ensure patients get the right level of care. And it's more respectful for patients and more joyful for clinicians because this is why in the end we went all into this business, right? We want to be healers. That is the next phase of this movement, in my opinion, is it's obviously that we're going to continue to do more research. We're going to continue to develop techniques, but that's the part that's going to move the needle the most. It's the part of the patient's family being able to, as you say, sometimes round with us, but to be an active participant, to break down that idea of, you know, if I, if we say, please tell us if we don't wash our hands for them to say, Hey, you know, I noticed you didn't wash your hands and for it to be okay for them, for it to be okay for the care team. I remember when I was a resident, we would round in the intensive care unit and we're having these conversations and the family sitting right there. And I mean, there'd be people that had their back to them and not right. that they were doing it consciously. They weren't trying to be mean and they weren't, I mean, they really weren't, but it wasn't correct either. There's that opportunity there. There's that insight there. There's that advocate when you're outside the room. Hey, can you remember to please elevate the head of the bed? Hey, can you remember to wash your hands? That I think right there, that's going to move, that's going to give us a quantum leap forward as we learn how to do that and feel comfortable just to pivot to that other human being who's sitting there and say, Hey, why don't you join us? And, and let's talk about what we're, what we're doing here. You're absolutely right, Mark. And what we need to do to get there is I think broadening our definition of the care team and really seeing us as a team of teams. What yes. do I mean by that? Well, we, say the patient's part of the care team, but if we really believe they're part of the care team, then inviting them in rounds wouldn't even be a question. I mean, right. how, how would you round without them if they're part of the care team, right? But yet, we still do round without them. And so, really believing deeply of not just the words, but seeing them as part of a care team. And then us as clinicians, seeing ourselves as a team of teams, you know, and uh, on my work, you know, the ICU team and the floor team are often seeing themselves as enemies. You know, it's those those <laughs> nurses just send them out to me and, and right. if only they would listen, do what I tell you thing, everything would be fine. Or the yeah. ED admitting yeah. up to the hospital service, if they would just take a patient during shift, all of our problems would be solved. Right. And we yeah. see them as the enemy rather than saying, no, no, we're all on the same team. It's right. the patient's team. And we need to work as a team of teams. We haven't evolved that mental model, let alone, Mark, now expanding that team of teams to include the home care nurses or your primary care physician, right? And say, yes, we're all on this together. And these teams are fluid and they're dynamic and they're beautiful because they come together to solve a problem. But it's all one team. There's that continuum there. And, you know, this is something that, that we work on where I am, too, is building out that continuum where... Anyone from the primary care provider to the hospitals, to the ICU doc, to the ED doc can access information, can, can communicate into the team. Hey, I know that family. Hey, I, I saw them a week ago. Let me add something to make that easy and seamless and to encourage it. But like you say, that biggest part is for the family to be able to, you know, engage with it as well. It's hard. It, 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 it doesn't mean it's not worth doing, but. Right now, the, it's a, right now, it's a dirt road, and we want to build an interstate. Right. And, you know, Mark, one of the things that we need to do to change that is change our mental model 
for what is wisdom or what's knowledge. The philosophers will call it our epistemology. Because you see, our view of wisdom right now is that wisdom is a hierarchy where it's all about book knowledge or formal learning so that the attending physician has the most senior or the most senior doctor, then the fellow or a junior doctor, then a resident, then a student, you know, on down, you know, to other staff and students and the patients and their families. And that is a domain of knowledge. But for many problems, it's a much less important domain than what I would call tacit wisdom or experiential domain, that is time with the patient or disease, right? And that is invaluable source of wisdom. And that hierarchy is almost a complete inverse. It's the patient and their loved ones who have lived with each other for years who know these subtle little signs that not you and I aren't going to pick up for our five minutes in the room with them. And if a mom says, hey, you know, my kid just doesn't look right, or a spouse mm-hmm. says, you know, I've lived with this person for 30 years, this isn't them, something's wrong. Or the nurse who's been at that bedside all day says, you know, something is just not right. And I don't mean to imply that you can't have both tacit knowledge and experience or and book or more formal meaning, you absolutely could. But for the most part, we tend to dismiss or discredit that tacit wisdom that comes from experience or time with a disease. And for certainly for patients with chronic diseases and for most uh, problems, it's at least, if not more important than the formal book learning. That is an interesting challenge to overcome because it also circles back to what you mentioned before, I think, which is a little bit of that hubris I know better than you do. I, you know, I, I trained at this illustrious institution and I'm the, I'm the, you know, I'm the professor, I'm the attending and, you know, we've got other things to do today. I think that that's going to be part of it. And I think that also connects with that education piece that you mentioned, you know, the people who are coming through the pipeline, the residents, the nursing students, you know, it's changing the mathematics around how they learn and observe some of those things as, as this movement continues to develop. You're absolutely right. And one of the ways we're trying to address that in our medical schools now are a couple of ways. One is I think you're absolutely right. Who we select? So do we have some people yes. who are selected towards a team orientation or that humility? But two is educating them on the science of wise decision making. You see, there's a very robust science about how teams make wise decisions. It's just not in the medical literature. It's in the social science or political science literature. But we know that teams make better decisions when they have diverse and independent input and they they build in pause points to question when things aren't going right. And when framed in that way, what we say to that professor, the senior doctor, is to saying, hey, we know you want what's right for your patient. If you structure your rounds this way, you're still the attending. It doesn't take away your power. It enhances it because you're more likely to make the right decision. So ask the family or the patient or the student or the nurse or the physical therapist what they think's going on because that's that diverse and independent input. And with all that wisdom, you could then integrate it to make a wiser decisions for your patients. So as we go forward and as we're kind of inculcating that process in people who are learning, as we're thinking about these things, obviously you're in your prime with this. You're continuing to do work. You're, you've got access now around the world and this movement is obviously building a bit of steam. So as you look forward and you've got in your own mind, you know, three o'clock in the morning, can't sleep. You've got your one-year plan, your three-year plan, your five-year plan. 
what sort of things are, are, are right up there on the horizon for you that are going to be impactful? Great point. There's really three things that we're continuing to work on. Number one is this, you know, doctor patient culture transformation of partnership, of, of humility, of being able to speak up and speak out the things that we've spoken to and continue to nurture that. It's really a culture of respect and trust. Number two is evolving away from safety as whack-a-mole project to this integrated operating management system with accountability. And, and we're seeing models now that we've piloted here and more than piloted, they're full-blown here and that we've spread to other places. It's what all other industries do. And then third, and perhaps the most exciting, Mark, is to begin to evolve from safety uh, based on heroism for safety based on design of safe systems. You see, right now, we've spent enormously on health information technology and are one of the few industries that have nothing to show for it. I mean, they've barely budged safety and productivity is negative. And our healthcare costs are a big problem because they're crowding out investments in schools and other social goods. And our approach has been to use fewer services. And, and though we do overuse services, that's a hard sell to the U.S. public. But what we haven't done and what every other industry has done is grow productivity. And, you know, right now, our doctors and nurses spend over 50% of their time documenting in the medical record. That's crazy waste. Our nurses spend 22% of their time hunting for supplies. Our nurses spend about 15% of their time manually double-checking medications when it could easily be done electronically. And we're working with the same engineers that did the Pluto mission uh, from our applied physics lab to literally de design an integrated hospital the same way they do these other complex systems to design a submarine or the cockpit where everything fits seamlessly together, where where you have the information that you need is designed around the needs of patients and clinicians. And, and we think that will be a transformative impact of making care radically safer and much more productive and less expensive. That's the sort of, I mean, that, that, that makes my heart rate go up. That that's the answer, because as you said, that wastage of human time and human energy, it's just there for the taking. It's there to be rerouted. You know, we can just move the pie chart around and that's the, that's going to be so exciting as that continues to evolve. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. This is such amazing work that you're doing. Uh, to be able to talk oh, about it. It's an honor for me to speak bit. with you and with uh, all your great audience. So thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And uh, we will really look forward to seeing what comes next. Yeah, I hope a year from now when we're talking, we have a hospital that is as seamless as a cockpit. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Sure thing. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.